This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. We are preventing the release of these very potent greenhouse gases, and we focus on some of the worst ones, uh, such as old refrigerants. These are gases that are up to 10,900 times as potent as CO2. So every pound that we collect is the same as 10,900 pounds of, of CO2. So they really do pack a punch. Climate change solutions typically center on carbon, and addressing carbon is essential for a safer climate future. But we sometimes forget that carbon isn't the only culprit. Fluorinated gases, such as old HVAC refrigerants, can have more than 10,000 times the climate-changing potential of carbon. The climate research nonprofit, Project Drawdown, determined that refrigerant management is one of the most impactful ways to mitigate climate change. As CEO of Tradewater, Tim Brown is racing to aggregate potent gases from around the world and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere and wreak havoc on our climate. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our Climate Positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com. Tim, thank you so much for joining us from Chicago today. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Throughout your career, you've been focused on the environment in both the nonprofit and the business sectors. In the late 90s, you co-founded the Delta Institute to address the intersection of economic development and environmental quality. You then founded Wabashco to create carbon offset and renewable energy projects. And most recently in 2016, you launched Tradewater, a company where you now serve as the CEO. You oversee the collection and destruction of potent greenhouse gases. Did you always know that you wanted to focus on the environment or was there something that drew you into this space? You know, I've always known that from really when I was in college. I knew that I was looking for a career in in the environment. I sort of felt passionately about it, even as a kid. And I think that, you know, some of the turning points for me were, I grew up in the Chicago area, and I, I spent a lot of time in the Great Lakes region, spending summers up on Lake Superior, and of course, living like right on, on Lake Michigan. And you know, I always felt that the real problems that the lakes were experiencing in terms of, of pollution, et cetera, were solvable, that it wasn't the lake's fault that they were experiencing the, these sorts of problems. And I think it was from that perspective that I was became really interested in like, well, how is it that we can prevent these problems in the first place, as opposed to really looking at the struggle to clean up problems after they've already occurred, which is some of the major water quality problems that exist in the Great Lakes region are around contaminated sediments and waterways, et cetera, that are the result of industrial activities and, and that kind of legacy. So I think it's it was from that awareness, having grown up in this region and really appreciating the amazing natural beauty and, and the huge water resource that we have here, but also feeling really badly that human activity had really damaged that that resource. So that's when I became very interested in, in working on pollution prevention and cleanup-related efforts and really trying to find a way to get to scale in that work. So that's, that's how it all began. And in terms of prevention, you've certainly been 
quite successful with Tradewater since you started. Tradewater has prevented the equivalent of, I think, 5.1 million tons of carbon equivalent from being released into the atmosphere. How do you do this? What's the basic business model? Well, I'm happy to say that it's actually 5.3 million metric tons now. Congratulations. Uh, But um, this work has been quite gratifying because we are preventing the release of these very potent greenhouse gases. And we focus on some of the worst ones, uh, such as old refrigerants. And these are gases like Freon. They are chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, and hydrochlorofluorocarbons, HCFCs. These are refrigerants that have been banned from production by the Montreal Protocol because they impact the ozone layer, but they're also very potent greenhouse gases. So we collect these gases that are either in cylinders and cans that are unused or from chillers and cooling systems and refrigeration systems that are being decommissioned. Uh, We collect them, we aggregate them, and then we destroy them. And that prevents their release into the atmosphere. These are gases that are up to 10,900 times as potent as CO2. So every pound that we collect is the same as 10,900 pounds of of CO2. So they really do pack a punch. How do you actually destroy the gases? What does that look like? Well, the Montreal Protocol, which is the prevailing global environmental policy that all countries have signed on to, Uh, requires that you use a destruction technology that addresses 99.99% of these gases. So there are approved technologies that uh, by the Montreal Protocol, and one of them is a rotary kiln incinerator. And that's the technology that we've been relying on most recently. Prior, we also used uh, plasma arc uh, furnaces. And both of these technologies use high heat to break down the contaminants and meet that 99.99% destruction efficiency requirement of the Montreal Protocol. And how do you source the gases? So when we started this work, um, maybe I could just back up a little bit to say that when I was working on project development through Wabashko, my my former company, that was uh, about 2012, the California Global Warming Solutions Act had been passed. That actually was passed in in 2006. And California was looking at at how to implement that program, like what would be the the mechanism, the regulatory mechanism to implement that program. And what they chose was a cap-and-trade program where regulated entities in California would be allowed to release greenhouse gases, but at at a declining cap over time and also at a price point that would increase over time. So that was their method for achieving the reductions of the Global Warming Solutions Act. And part of that cap-and-trade program included the use of carbon offset credits, which are indirect reductions of CO2 or sequestration of CO2. And so they were allowing carbon offset credits into that program. One of the carbon offset project types is the uh, collection destruction of ozone-depleting substances, such as old refrigerants. So I went out to California from Chicago in 2012 to understand more about the California Cap-and-Trade Program and to learn about the carbon offset program and thus became familiar with this particular project type. And on my way back, I thought to myself, you know what, I bet you we could do something around that. We could sort of look for and find these gases. And when I got home, I um, 
just started researching a bit. And to my surprise, I found that this material could be had on eBay. So I bought it. I bought a cylinder of R12 Freon off of eBay. I think <laughs> I paid too much for it. And uh, Do they then just deliver it to your door? It arrived at my house. And my wife sort of was wondering, what, what, what are you into now? <laughs> what is that? And it was so intriguing to me that you could actually buy this pollution off of an e-commerce platform. And, and actually, I sort of felt that it was a very interesting form of pollution prevention it would be to simply buy the pollution and then destroy it. And that's how it all began. And so when you ask, where do we find it? It's remarkable how much of this stuff is still out there to the point that that individuals are are putting it up on e-commerce platforms. We don't we don't find it that that way very much anymore. We've sort of evolved to to know where to look for it, to know who might have it, uh, and the different sectors that that are still using these old refrigerants. Many people have cylinders that are unused or stockpiles that we we learn about and that we end up buying. And then there are plenty of old buildings that have uh, old chilling and cooling systems that have this material as well. So we've developed a collection network that is now in 49 states in the United States where we find this material in very small quantities and we aggregate it, uh, collect it, we aggregate it in, in our warehouse in Chicago and then we send it off to be destroyed. We have also started to do this work globally and have many different projects going on in, uh, in countries around the world, um, which really sort of points to the reality that these gases are really broadly distributed globally, and they do present a real climate risk. And so there is a very nice additionality to collecting this material and certainly a permanence in destroying it. Uh, and so that's the, the model that we're, that we're pursuing now. So you're actually paying the owners of these pollutants to turn in the pollutant. Are they motivated primarily by the money or... Do they have climate goals in mind? Well, I would say that the money is uh, is certainly persuasive. <laughs> I think some people certainly have a climate motive and want to do the responsible thing with these gases that they have. But you know, we're very happy to pay for it. We've actually spent, I think it's well over $30 million now in very small quantities. I think we've got over so close to probably 30,000 people that we've purchased material from. And so there is a small scale, but important economic impact, particularly when you aggregate that up. And I think that's that's fine with us. I mean, we create a carbon offset credit from this work, which we then sell that offset. And, you know, it's a very strange business because these refrigerants that we collect are actually more valuable once they're destroyed. So when they don't exist than when they do exist. So it all works out. Everybody gets what they need and we're able to collect and destroy this material. And typically, when trade water is not involved, what happens to the material? My husband and I recently upgraded our HVAC system to a more efficient model. I assume that this was a net win for the environment, and now I cringe thinking about <laughs> what probably happened to that old refrigerant. Yeah. How could I have done that more responsibly? Well, you may you may have done it responsibly if the contractor that you were working with either reclaimed and, and reused that material or sent it off to be destroyed. The real risk here is that it gets released into the atmosphere. It just simply gets vented. And that's really what we're trying to prevent is to catch this material before that may happen. 
Uh, it's very easy for these gases to be released during the decommissioning process of an old piece of equipment. And also the cylinders that you often find in stockpiles of material are prone to rust and leaking. So that's the risk, is that it's going to be released into the atmosphere. And we, when we talk about the climate impacts and, and the carbon offset credits, what we're really looking for are projects that meet an additionality standard, meaning that this is above and beyond business as usual. And it is the case that there are no mandates to collect and destroy these gases. So there is nothing that requires proper end-of-life disposal of this material. So there is always this risk that it's going to be released. So by intervening into the system, by collecting and destroying and sort of doing something above and beyond what is required, creates this high-quality carbon offset credit that we utilize to fund our work. Why do you think these gases don't get more attention and why people don't know more about them and their climate impact? I understand that about 3% of man-made climate change can be attributed to leaking refrigerant gases, which is about equivalent to the impact of air travel. And we talk so much about air travel and the carbon impact. Nobody talks about the leaking refrigerant. Why is that? You know, I think it's just so obscure. You know, we actually participated in some focus groups around this same question. And we're very surprised that that even the concept of refrigeration and, and a refrigerant is something that is, you know, really not at the you know, top of mind for most people. So it's an unsung, one of those unsung greenhouse gases. In 2017, Project Drawdown released its report and to our surprise, and I think to many people's surprise, uh, refrigerant management ended up being the number one solution uh, recommended in Project Drawdown to address runaway climate change, uh, which really points to the importance of these gases. And, and not only are they incredibly potent, uh, but they're also this class of non-CO2 greenhouse gases that accelerate climate change, that, that if we can get them out of the system early, it gives a longer period of time for some of the CO2-based strategies to take hold. And it's, it's complicated stuff, so not everybody knows about this. I mean, who thinks very much about the refrigerant and their air conditioner in their car or in their refrigerator? I mean, it's, it's just not a mainstream kind of issue. But I think that there's, you know, with publications like Project Drawdown and just sort of a greater awareness of, of climate, I think people, more and more people are starting to appreciate that there are these non-CO2 gases, such as refrigerants, that make up a large portion of the, of the overall greenhouse gas budget that, that we can start to address. And my understanding is you recently launched the Catalytic Coalition with an emphasis on increasing awareness of these potent gases. How is that initiative structured and what are your goals for it? So, you know, we've been on this hunt for, for these forms of gases and, and have done a, a very decent job of finding the dribs and drabs <laughs> that we aggregate up to actually be a large impact. But there are still a lot of these gases that are in use in chillers and buildings and manufacturing and industrial processes, et cetera. And so these are systems that may still be working just fine. And what we're interested in doing is finding where all the refrigerant is so that we can start to engage with whoever is controlling those gases in a discussion on how to accelerate the conversion of those older systems to newer, 
systems that are more efficient, like the one that you put in your house, and that may use a lower global warming potential gas. And so therefore, reducing the risk of climate impact from those cooling systems. So what we've been doing is talking to companies and organizations that have a large portfolio of buildings and engaging with them on conducting an inventory to understand the greenhouse gases that are under management, and then to engage in these accelerated conversion strategies. And it's been really very interesting. We've been working with a range of organizations from data centers to even municipalities. We've been working with a couple of universities and and others to have uh, been looking at inventories of, of others such as retail, and big box stores, etc. And for some of the larger companies, just by looking at the refrigerant alone, you find that there's huge amounts of greenhouse gases under management that really haven't been on the radar. One retail chain, for example, had about 2 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent in refrigerant on rooftop cooling units throughout their portfolio. Each and every one of those you know, systems is, is a small, relatively small reservoir of greenhouse gases. But when you add them up across a portfolio, it's actually quite sizable. And so the Catalytic Coalition is about bringing together companies and organizations that really are interested in working on this and catalyzing additional attention to this problem and start to engage on how it makes sense to accelerate the conversion of these systems in, in, in ways that work well for the company, but that have an end-of-life component to them for those old gases. So we're hopeful that this opens up a whole new avenue to find these old gases and then to create these end-of-life opportunities for them. So we're always looking for companies and organizations that are interested in, in exploring this and Fortunately, we're getting more and more opportunities to do that, which is great. And do the companies typically get offsets from their end-of-life focus with these refrigerants, or are they paid for the pollutants, like a typical trade water transaction? We can do it either way. So we can pay for those refrigerants and take them off and get them destroyed, and then we would take the uh, you know handle the carbon offsets at, at the end, or we can provide that service of collecting and destroying and returning those carbon offset credits that a company can use in their net zero climate commitments and that sort of thing. I want to touch back on the carbon offsets. Yeah, Carbon offsets come under a lot of criticism at times because it can be really hard to quantify the actual impact of $1 spent on a carbon offset. But I learned about trade water in part because the data-driven organization Giving Green cited trade water as one of the most cost-effective ways to reduce carbon, dollar for dollar. And you mentioned the additionality of your carbon offsets and the permanence. Could you go into that a little bit more and why your offsets are different from offsets from other organizations? Sure. I think that one thing that distinguishes us is the fact that we destroy things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so there is a permanence to it. Yeah, forestry credits, which we love. I mean, I think that that uh, protecting forests and making sure that those stocks of CO two remain in the ground, etc., are are incredibly important. But they are vulnerable to forest fires or to you know storms, etc., that may compromise the sequestered carbon. Our projects really are final. There's no leakage that can occur from the project. And what that means is that once we collect and destroy these refrigerants, there's no way for that refrigerant to leak back into the atmosphere. 
So it is the the permanence of the of the project is I think what distinguishes it among a whole range of of project types. I think our view is that it's good that there's a whole range of project types because in order to get at you know, to prevent runaway climate change, we really are needing to do kind of an all of the above strategy and the extent to which more and more project types can emerge that really are strong and of high quality. I think the better. I think ours ends up being good on additionality, good on permanence, and therefore a good deal, dollar for dollar. And so we're happy about that. Once the gases are taken out of service, how long do you have to destroy them? Is there a time period when after, for instance, 10 years, you know that they're going to start leaking out of the canister? Our perspective is that the sooner we can destroy them, the better, um, that there's always that risk of, of them being released. And I think we have a you know, sense of, of responsibility once we have them, they're in our possession, in our custody, that, that we want to you know, hurry up and get them destroyed. With that said, you know, it's economically, you need to accumulate a, you know, enough to make a project worth it. It's, it's expensive to, to ship stuff around, to destroy them, to go through the verification process, which is really very important. So we tend to destroy in what we call tranches. Those can be up to 30,000 pounds of, of material in one destruction event, which may yield up to 100 or 150,000 tons, depending on you know really where you land on it and what, what is the refrigerant type. So that's our take on it, is that the, the faster we can get them in control and then destroyed, the better. The longer that they kick around, the more risk there is for release into the atmosphere. And one thing about these gases is that once they're in the atmosphere, they cannot be removed. Unlike CO2, when it's in the atmosphere, you can remove it, you know, trees, sequester it, et cetera. But these gases, these refrigerant gases, cannot be removed. So it puts a finer point on the importance of destroying them. That's got to be exciting when you have the new tranche of gases that you're going to destroy. Does everyone toast in the office and celebrate a little bit? You know, we do. We have a, a gong here that, uh, <laughs> do you? that we That's great. And, and the gong is actually made of an old cylinder of these gases. And so we we bang the gong. And now, since we're somewhat distributed, we have a virtual gong. But yes, we do celebrate that there's a, a bunch of these gases that are going to see their end of life. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. How often do you get to bang that gong? Around, you know, every six weeks or so, we get to send material off. You know, it kind of depends. We have these international projects that are under development. They take a little bit longer to get through the whole cycle, but uh, those are what we would call gong-worthy events as well. So we've got a few of those coming up soon here too. And when you go overseas, I understand you first worked in Ghana in 2017. And I used to work in the Middle East and East Africa implementing USAID programs. I always found it so important to find the right people but that's mm-hmm. really hard. And then once you find them, you can do absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. How do you find the right partners on the ground and establish a presence in a new country overseas? Well, in the case of Ghana, Ghana found us, which was really fun. There was a an organization called City Waste Recycling that's in Accra in Ghana. And they had been recovering old refrigerators and recycling them. And they were removing the refrigerant from those refrigerators but they didn't have any place to take the gases. There was no destruction capacity in Ghana. So I don't know how they found us, but they contacted us and said, you know, hi, we're, we're in Ghana and we've got these gases. Can you help us 
find a, a place for them. So we decided to try to, to figure it out. And we ended up working with the Vera registry to create a carbon offset protocol that would work on an international basis for this kind of project. And then we went to Ghana and inspected the material. We asked the city waste recycling folks if they could find some more uh, material so that we would have a large enough project to make it worth it. They found a huge stockpile of these old gases. So we ended up taking the recovered gases that they had along with some of the stockpile. We didn't want to take it all because we weren't sure if this would work. And then we worked with the United States Environmental Protection Agency and the government in Ghana to provide for its export from Ghana into the United States so that we could destroy it under the offset protocol that we had helped put in place with the Vera Registry. And we did that project, and then we needed to find a buyer for the project in order to make it all work out. And we found a wonderful partner in Intuit that was looking to offset their climate impacts. And so they bought those credits. And then with the money from those credits, we went back and got the rest of it out of Ghana. So we ended up doing two projects in Ghana. But you're absolutely right that it it works best when you've got a, a strong partner like we did with City Waste Recycling. We've since been working to find material around the world, and we've got a a really strong team that's headquartered in Costa Rica that is uh, leading that effort. And that effort, too, is leading to partners that we can work well with in other parts of of the world. And so as a result, we've got projects going on in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, and certainly in North America. So all of a sudden, this whole effort is going global, which is really quite astonishing when you think of how it all started. Do you expect that in the future you'll establish destruction facilities overseas? Well, the access to destruction capacity is a very big issue for this line of work. And so we've, we have found other destruction capacity around the world. We can't bring all of the material to the United States anyway. So we've found capacity in France and in South Africa, in Saudi Arabia, in Thailand, and we've been looking for other places to take it as well. But that gives us some decent coverage for the projects that we're developing. Again, all of these destruction facilities must meet the very strict standards of the Montreal Protocol, as well as the carbon offset protocol standards, which are you know very rigid as well. And it takes a while to do the due diligence and to characterize those facilities, but we're fortunate to have now have a good network of destruction facilities that we can utilize. And my understanding is these refrigerants are being phased out and that by 2028, they cannot be put into use around the world. Is that right? So there's different schedules. So the, the CFCs, the older stuff, the chlorofluorocarbons, have been phased out. Uh, those okay. can't be produced anymore or used, but there still exists. Well, I shouldn't say they can't be used. You can't make a new appliance that specifies those CFCs, but old appliances can still use them. So is CFC still produced? No. So that, that okay. production ban is done. Uh, the next generation are the hydrochlorofluorocarbons, the HCFCs, and those are in the process of being banned. The production ban is taking place in, in a staggered basis around the world. In the United States, for example, that ban is in place Okay. and uh, in other parts, but it's not completely taken effect. And then the other form of refrigerant are HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, 
uh, where that ban is going to take even longer, but it started. It was part of what was called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which aligned with the Paris Agreement. All these gases are now that that ban will will take place over time for all of them. I think what's important to note is that the bans simply ban production. They do not ban use, nor do they require an end-of-life scenario for the existing gases, which means that the same issue that we have seen with chlorofluorocarbons, the original bad ones, CFCs, are going to be the case for the HCFCs and the HFCs. There's going to be a gargantuan volume of these gases. Whereas new production is banned, the old stuff is still going to be out there. And so this is an issue that is going to take a long time to resolve, which is why projects like the Catalytic Coalition, which is looking at accelerating conversions to lower global warming potential and refrigerants is so important. And we want to see the more efficient, lower TWP systems take hold and then create these end-of-life solutions at scale for the remaining refrigerants. But it's, it's a big project. One thing I wanted to mention is that, just to give you a sense of scale, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute for Technology, some of the researchers there did some modeling on the remaining stocks of CFCs, which were the first gases that were banned, and their results showed that they estimated about 9 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent in the form of those old CFCs are still in existence around the world, and that's just that form of refrigerant. So, of course, it's the most potent kind, but nevertheless, it just shows you the scale that we're talking about. Given how destructive these gases are, why isn't there more of a push to come up with an end-of-life policy or requirement, at least in the more developed countries where you have more infrastructure to support it? That is a good question that you should probably ask of um, the regulators. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's, it is always interesting to me, having been in this pollution prevention business for, for so long, as to why that is the case. You know, why isn't there a, a greater attention to end of life, you know, to really looking at the responsibility of producers around these gases? This is a, an age-old problem that we have. This is why we have these big problems. Is companies or manufacturers, et cetera, don't take responsibility for the impacts of what they create. And I think that the refrigeration and air conditioning innovations were certainly welcomed. And, and certainly nobody knew at the time of what the, the unintended consequences of these gases would be relative to, to climate. I mean, that wasn't on anybody's radar. But nevertheless, that's where we find ourselves, like in so many other environmental problems where we're dealing with the effects of you know, what people put in motion a long time ago. And it is too bad that there isn't more responsibility being taken. I think what is interesting now and is different from other things that I've worked on over time is that the climate benefit enables a possibility to collect and destroy these gases because there's a there's a monetary reason to do it there's a there's a way to fund it and the more that that companies and individuals etc appreciate and value the climate benefits and are willing to pay for it the then the better chance we have to get at scale to go after these gases because they are collecting and destroying is additional to business as usual there is a permanence to it so the more people realize, like, God, this is a solution that we can support and get behind and use the climate benefit, I think the better chance we have of going after them. And then beyond the refrigerants, Tradewater started to focus more on methane capture. 
What are you excited about in that space? Yeah, you know, early on, the methane has been of interest. And in, in the original company that I started, Webashco, that was one of the first things we did was look at methane releases from abandoned coal mines and sort of look at the climate benefits of making sure that that form of gas was destroyed or prevented from being released into the atmosphere. Uh, we got away from that a little bit as our work in the refrigerant space kind of ballooned, and we were very busy building that program. But methane is such a, another important non-CO2 gas. It is, you know, it's potent. It has an accelerating effect on climate. And there are a lot of these abandoned small sources of it that in and of themselves are small. But again, if you aggregate it up, the impact is huge. So we have been looking at the opportunity to control methane releases from abandoned oil and gas wells which is an important issue. There's been some new funding available from the Department of Interior in the United States to kind of go after these sources, but it won't be enough to get at the incredibly huge volume of these old oil wells and gas wells that have been abandoned where there is no responsible party available and that are continuing to release methane. So we are looking to start a program that will plug those wells, the, as many as we can find, and to, to me, it, it works really well with our refrigerant program because these methane sources are active. They're happening right now. So I really like, as a mission-based company, I like the combination of both preventing the existing releases of potent greenhouse gases as well as destroying potential releases and ensuring that, that those don't get released at all. So anyway, that's what we're up to there. We're, we're working on designing some chamber tests in order to utilize with some existing abandoned oil and gas wells to measure the, the flow of methane that's coming off and to understand what that climate impact is. And then we'll be working with people in that sector to, to get those things plugged up and therefore create a, a good climate benefit. The landowners will be delighted because you know they've got an abandoned well on their land that will be taken care of. And and then we would prevent this otherwise ongoing source of, of greenhouse gas from getting to the atmosphere. So it's a, it's a really nice project type. It's so nice how you use the cap and trade and the offsets to come up with this market solution to something where nobody wants to deal with it otherwise. Yeah. But are you going to have to come up with a different gong, like a different <laughs> sound for those? Yes. That, I'm glad you mentioned that. We'll have to get on that. You know, you mentioned the cap-and-trade. The cap-and-trade program really has been great. That's a nice example of what happens when a regulatory program puts a price on carbon and there's a compliance piece to it such that regulated entities have to do it. I think what we're also seeing is the strong emergence of the voluntary markets. These are companies and individuals that have made climate commitments, such as net zero commitments, or they have a climate-facing commitment of some kind that they're looking to address. And the more that those kinds of entities value and are willing to pay for the climate benefit of these kinds of projects, the better chance we have to get at scale. And so we're starting to see that happen at a much higher level globally. Leading companies are really taking this stuff seriously, and they're enabling projects like what we're working on to happen, which otherwise just simply wouldn't. And I think that all speaks to kind of a nice trend in valuing climate benefits and supporting them. And it's been very helpful. So the, the combination of a compliance market and a voluntary market is what we see as being able to get to scale. 
It's always refreshing when they have a partner like Tradewater, where you are so science-driven and precise. And so you know it's not just the greenwashing. That is obviously always a concern. And I really take pride in the intense documentation that comes with our work. When you think about it, in the case of the refrigerants, we have to prove that something existed and then we have to prove that it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and so we have to document it the whole way through from where did we find it? Every single pound of this stuff, when did we find it? What is the chain of custody? When did we have it? When does it go to the destruction facility? And then to show that it was indeed was destroyed. So that whole documentation set makes, again, for this strong carbon offset that there really is no, not a chance that uh, one can greenwash the way around it. I like it. So, Tim, we're almost done, but first I want to move to the hot seat. Okay. So fill in the blank for the following statements. The most important advice I have ever followed is? Don't take no for an answer. I bet you get no a lot and have to push back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that it, if you're in these kind of entrepreneurial space where you're doing something that's so unusual, there's plenty of people that will tell you that can't be done or... I don't understand what you're talking about, so I'm not going to support it or whatever it is. But I think that having determination to not be derailed by that kind of sentiment, I think, is what makes the difference in actually achieving something. Success is? Success is, is seeing scale happen, is, is seeing a meaningful scale. And you know, when we started this work, we thought that it was going to be kind of one and done. You find these stuff, you collect them, destroy them, and that's it, and move on to some other project type. But knowing that so much of it exists and to move to having goals that may have been a million tons and to three million tons and then to three million tons every year, you know, I think that's what success is. And that's what feels good about it is that you can actually make a contribution that is growing, that can persist over time, that can transcend uh, boundaries, that can it can be global in scale. That's pretty exciting. My climate hero is? I think I'd have to say it's Al Gore. He early on created such awareness of climate change and brought the issue to the forefront through the inconvenient truth, uh, his lectures and advocacy. But I would also say that Fran Pavley is my climate hero. She was in the California State Assembly and Senate and wrote the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. And this put a price on carbon and created a mandate for companies in all sectors to reduce emissions to be within a declining cap. And the results of her work have been amazingly effective and far-reaching. When I need to recharge, I... Go to the woods. Getting into nature, being in the trees and the forest has always been a, a way for me to recharge. Which are your favorite woods to go into? Well, I take really any, um, but I'm, I'm particularly fond of the North Woods along the Lake Superior shoreline and Northern Michigan is a go-to place for me. That's great. And then finally, last question. To me, climate positive means? Climate positive means taking care of your past, addressing emissions that have already occurred, plus making a big investment in prevention of future emissions. I think that is how I would look at, at climate positive. And I'm heartened and impressed by 
organizations that are really taking a climate positive view. And I think that's that's where we need to be. Well, Tim, thank you so much for doing this with us. And we're inspired by your work and really excited about all of the growth that Tradewater has ahead. Well, thank you. It's been really fun and really appreciate the opportunity to share this story and certainly all the work you do to bring similar stories to light. I think it's great. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Hillary Langer, and this is Climate Positive.